Hi, I'm Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to one of my messages from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. If you have a copy of God's Word, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. We will be in chapter 17 as we're journeying through this account, this eyewitness account of the life and ministry and death and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus. We have come to what is sometimes called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. We began looking at this last week together, and we'll continue uh, looking at this prayer. So beginning in chapter 13, Jesus is spending the last evening with his disciples before the events that will lead to his crucifixion begin to unfold. And so on this very night, he will be arrested, taken into custody, and led eventually to the cross. And so these last few chapters have been kind of the last sermon of Jesus to his disciples, preparing them for what's going to come. He concluded that sermon, if you will, with uh, the words at the end of chapter 16, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So there's this note of triumphant hope uh, in the, at the end of this message. And then, as verse 1 of chapter 17 told us, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, and then the rest of chapter 17 is a prayer of Jesus to his Father, that the disciples and us down through the ages by reading these scriptures have the opportunity to intrude on almost, to eavesdrop upon. And it feels a little bit weird. Like this is too holy, too intimate, too sacred of a moment for us to really be witness to. And yet in God's kindness, he has left this prayer for us. And so with some slight embarrassment and apologies. Lord, I'm sorry that we're intruding in this holy moment. If you'll just give us audience, we come to this amazing prayer of the Lord Jesus. As I shared last week, there's kind of three main movements of the prayer, where in the first five verses, he prays for himself. He prays for the glory of God, the Father and the Son. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And so the first five verses are all concerned about, as the cross is approaching, the glory of God being seen, revealed, and honored for who he is. Then verses 6 through 19, which is where we'll be today, he prays specifically for his disciples, that is, those who would be the apostles. So the 11, the 12 minus Judas, the betrayer, uh, the 11 disciples who are with him, he prays for them within their earshot, which I think is cool. And then verses 20 through 26, he prays for us. That is all those who would believe through the word of the apostles. And that includes all Christians down through the centuries since that day. And so that's what we'll look at next week. So today we zero in on that middle portion where he's praying for his immediate disciples 
And I think you'll find that there's much of what he prays for these disciples that is immediately applicable and relevant to us as followers of Jesus even a couple of millennia later. Something to remember about prayer, especially public prayer, prayer that is said aloud in the the context of a group. You can learn a lot by listening to someone pray. I don't know if you've noticed that before. You can learn a lot about what's important to someone when you're in a room together and someone prays aloud. You can hear in the kinds of things that they are praying for, the things that they ask of God, even the things that maybe they confess to God, you can hear what's important to a person, what is really in their heart. You learn a lot about the nature of a person's relationship with God in the way that they pray. And when you're, I don't know if you've had the experience of being around someone in a a prayer context where you hear someone pray and you think, this person really knows God. Like this person has a deep and intimate and meaningful relationship with God. And I can tell that just by the way that he or she prays. You can learn a lot about the nature of someone's relationship with God. And frankly, when you're in the presence of someone who prays this way, in a deep way, in a meaningful way, you learn how to pray. In fact, I think there's no better way to pray than to pray with people who pray well. I think that really uh, is something that we could all learn from. We need to spend time with people who pray well and learn from their prayers, from the way that they approach God, from the kinds of things they ask of him, to uh, the, the concerns that are on their hearts, and even the, the tone of re- relationship and, and the manner in which uh, we approach God. We learn how to pray by listening to people pray, who pray well. So it goes without saying then that as we're looking at a chapter-length prayer of Jesus, the eternal Son of God, as he has a conversation with his Father, who is our Father by faith, we can learn a great deal about what's important to Jesus and about the nature of Jesus' own relationship with the Father. There's this mysterious Trinitarian Father-Son-Spirit relationship going on that we don't totally understand, and yet we observe it and we marvel at it. And we learn how to pray when we look at the prayer of Jesus, how we ought to approach God and the kinds of things we should ask for. That, all of that said, this is a little bit difficult beyond those big movements praying for his glory, praying for his immediate disciples, and then praying for all those who would believe through their word. It's a little bit difficult to pick this apart. Well, here, it's not necessarily logical or linear. He says this, and that leads to that, and the conclusion is this. It's not necessarily that plain, because this is prayer. This is Jesus pouring out his heart, if you will, to God the Father as the disciples listen in. And so, with that in mind, we'll walk through these verses And we want to see what the Spirit of God would teach us about what's important to him and about how we ought to approach God in prayer as we look at these verses. So the first thing he says in verse 6. Actually, let me read for you verses 6 through 19. Nope, I'm going to read for you verse 1 through 19. There you go. How's that for flip-flopping in the moment? I'm going to read verses 1 through 19, and then we will... Zero in on verse 6. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. 
glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So going back to verse 6. The opening to this section, if you will, of Jesus' prayer says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. I have manifested your name. Now, the name of God is a big deal. And in biblical thought, a name meant a whole lot more than it does to us generally today. Like, I named my kids based on what I thought sounded cool, right? I like that name, so I'm going to name them that. In biblical thought, and in, and in this time and in this culture, a name really encapsulated all that a person was. A person's character, work, and action, and words. And so for Jesus to say that he's manifested the name of God is to say that he has revealed to his disciples who God really is. And that, in fact, harkens right back to the beginning of John's gospel, where in chapter 1, verse 14, he says, And the Word, that is the eternal Son of God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then down in verse 18, he says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So the whole 
prologue or prelude to the story of Jesus that John writes for us is that Jesus himself would reveal God to people. That is what Jesus does because that's who he is. He is the son of God. So when Jesus says, I have manifested your name, that is the name of God the Father, to them, he is saying, I have shown the world. I have shown especially my disciples who you really are. So they've come to know you as they have seen me. And so then in the first, uh, say, verses 7, actually verse 6 through verse 10, he says a whole bunch of things about the disciples. And so I want to sort of categorize these things, if you will, uh, these things that he says about the disciples. And by answering a couple of questions. Number one, what is the most fundamental reality of the disciples' lives? Or what would Jesus say is the most important thing about them? And the answer to that is given in four different places throughout these, these, uh, these words. So in verse 6, they were given by the Father to the Son. All right, he says, the people whom you gave me out of the world, Right? You, yours they were, and you gave them to me. So they were the fathers, and they were given to the son. So of his disciples, he says, they're yours, and you've given them to me. Then down in verse 10, he says, they are yours, right? And they are mine, right? Verse 10 says, all mine are yours, and yours are mine. They belong to the Father, and they belong to both the Father and the Son. So he says that in several different ways, but what he's basically saying is they belong to me. That's the most basic reality or basic description of the disciples of Jesus is they are his. So if Jesus were picking them out of a lineup of all the world, and there's 11 disciples there, he would say, that one is mine. That is his primary description of these disciples. They're mine. They're the fathers. They're our unique possession, our belonging, if you will. So the most basic reality of the disciples' lives is that they belong to Jesus and to the Father. Second question I might ask is, what is the proof that they belong to Jesus? How would the world know that they belong to Jesus? He gives us that answer in several places as well. Verse 6, they have kept your word. Verse 8, they have received your word. I've given them the words you gave me and they've received them, right? Verse 7, they know that everything of Jesus is from the Father, right? Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. And verse 8, they know in truth that Jesus came from the Father. And also verse 8, they have believed that the Father sent Jesus. So how does the world know that these disciples belong to Jesus? They've kept his word. They've believed what he said. They know in truth that Jesus came from God, that Jesus came from the Father. They belong to Jesus we know that because they believe in the words and the message and the teaching of Jesus. And the result of all of that, verse 10, I am glorified in them. 
Jesus Christ is glorified in the disciples because they belong to him. And he knows they belong to him because they've kept his word. They've believed his message and have received him as being from the Father. So the summary of verses 6 through 10 would be something like this. The disciples belong to the Father, and now he shares them with the Son. So they are his possession, his people. And Jesus knows they're his and the Father's because they have received and believed his word. And this belonging and this believing glorifies Jesus. And if you remember, the glory of Jesus was at the heart of the first five verses of this prayer. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Well, how is the Son glorified? At least in some measure, by the disciples belonging to him and believing in him. Now, I just got to say here, as I'm considering these 11 men, and I'm hearing Jesus' description of them. They've kept your word. They believed your word. They know that I came from you. They're faithful it strikes me as a pretty generous assessment of these disciples. We've already seen how they're slow to believe. They often misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Sometimes they put their foot in their mouth and they say the totally wrong thing. Jesus has told them in this very speech this evening that Peter is going to deny him and that all of them are going to abandon him. In his hour of need, when the pressure is on and the enemy is approaching, they're going to scatter. He said that to them in chapter 16. So it strikes me as a very generous assessment that Jesus would say, these guys are authentic. These guys are reliable. These guys are mine and they're trustworthy. And so take heart. Be encouraged. Your goofs haven't disqualified you from being his follower. Because we've all goofed up, right? Even those who say, yeah, I follow Jesus. I've known him for a long time. We mess up. We go astray. We make bad decisions. We say stuff we shouldn't say. We look at stuff we shouldn't look at. We don't represent Jesus well all the time. But Jesus, if he can say of these 11 disciples, they're mine they belong to me, they believe in me, they're authentic, they're true, they're reliable, then I think his grace, his mercy is far bigger than we often give it credit for. We see our sin, we see our failures, we see our mistakes. Sometimes that clouds our view and we think there's no way God could still accept me or God could still use me or God could still love me. And I think Jesus would say to us here, you're mine. You belong. You believe. Nothing can change that. So be encouraged at Jesus' generous assessment of his 11 disciples. So that's kind of what's going on in verses 6 through 10. He says all these things about the disciples. They're mine because they believe and I'm glorified in their belonging and their belief. And then he goes on to ask the father three things. So he makes three requests for his disciples. Number one, he asks the Father for their protection. For their protection. 
verse 11, he says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. So here we go. Holy Father, keep them in your name. He sets the scene. I'm gone, right? The cross is upon me. In just hours, I'm going to be killed. Then I'll rise, and I'll be around for 40 days or so, but then I'm gone, right? So it's so immediate that it's like in the past tense. I'm no longer in the world, right? I'm leaving, and they're staying here. They're stuck here without me. So here's the request. Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. And he says this word or this request to keep them four times in the next few verses. Verse 11 through 15, four times. It's actually two Greek words that ESV translates as keep in every case. Um, but it means basically the same thing. It's about protection. It's about guarding. And in fact, the one time where it's a different word is where Jesus says, I have guarded them. I have kept them. It's, it's a slightly different Greek word, which is kind of interesting. But so four times within these few verses, he makes this request. Keep them. Look at verse 11. Keep them in your name. Verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except for the son of destruction. That's Judas, who betrayed Jesus, that the scripture would be fulfilled. So that in itself was not like a mess up. Oh man, that guy slipped through the cracks. That was in God's plan from the beginning, that Judas would be lost, so to speak. And then finally, verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So essentially, while Jesus was on the earth with his disciples, his job was to protect them. He shepherded them. He, he kept them together, made sure they were on the same page, right? He made sure that enemies and those who would press against them didn't get too close. So there's certainly some physical protection element to that, but I think even more than that, a spiritual protection, that they would be guarded from disbelief, from thinking, you know what, this is too weird or too hard. And even in places like John 6, where he said things like, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have eternal life, and crowds went, and I'm done. That's too much. And off they went. These guys went, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And I think that's a result of Jesus' protection of them. He kept them believing. He kept them in the faith. And he succeeded completely, but now he's leaving. So that, the situation is Jesus has been protecting them, and he's about to go away. So Jesus asks the Father, in his absence, to take care of them. Will you guard them? Will you keep them? Will you protect them while I am away? We recently sent our two oldest kids to a middle school camp in Texas, which we'd never done before. That's kind of a new experience for them and for us. And when our kids are at home, they're in our care. You know, Lindsay and me, as their parents, are immediately responsible for their well-being, their provision, their safety. But when we send them to camp, well, we're not there. We're not with them. We can't guard them. We can't protect them. And so, in essence, we said to the camp leaders and the leaders of this church group that they went, please protect them. Right? Please keep them safe. Watch over them. Care for them while we aren't with them. If you've sent your kids away from you for any length of time, that's what you're doing in essence. is saying, will you please take care of them 
while I am not with them. Or maybe you went out of town for a trip and you had to leave your kids with somebody. Will you guard them? Will you protect them? You're handing off that responsibility for a time to this other person. That's essentially what Jesus is doing here. I have been guarding them. I've been keeping them. I've protected them. But now I'm leaving. And so I need your help. So Jesus asks the Father, will you protect them? Now, here's what I think is so interesting about this. He's basically doing, by asking the Father to care for them in his absence, he's basically doing in this prayer what he promised the disciples that he would do back in chapter 14, verse 16, where he said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. That is capital S, spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. So Jesus told his disciples, when I leave, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to send you the spirit of God to help you, to comfort you, to indwell you, to empower you for life and mission and ministry in my absence. So, Here's what's going on. God the Father has gifted disciples to Jesus, his son. Here are these that are mine, and I'm making them yours. God the Son, Jesus Christ, has kept them faithfully while on earth and will continue to be their shepherd. And he, as he's about to leave, asks God the Father to care for them. Once he returns to heaven. And in response, God the Father will send God the Spirit to indwell the disciples and empower them for life and ministry. So all three persons of the eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, are working in unison to secure forever those who belong to him by faith. You can't get any more secure than that. Father, Son, Spirit working in unison to keep and to preserve and to guard and to protect the ones who belong to him. That is amazing. If you are feeling unstable in your Christian life, if you are uncertain of your position with God, insecure about whether God is really on your side, then hear this word of encouragement. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are working together for the security of your soul and your protection from the devil. That's amazing. That ought to give us confidence, even in light of our own failures and sins and mistakes. It's not about my performance. My security, my standing, my eternal hope is not based on how well I do. It's based on the strength of Father, Son, and Spirit, the triune God, holding me in their hand. Praise God. So he asks for their protection. The second thing he asks for is their unity. Their unity. Now, this is actually not a direct petition or request of God. It's really kind of the the result, the, the upshot of his request for the disciples' protection. So in verse 11, he said, keep them in your name that they may be one, even as we are one, we being father and son. 
So something of the oneness, the connectedness between the Father and the Son is to be experienced and enjoyed in the unity of the disciples, the followers of Jesus. We'll talk actually more about that next week. But the result of this keeping, this protecting, this preserving that he's asking God the Father to do on behalf of his disciples is this unity, this oneness, that they may be one. Because here's the thing. Jesus knows that the devil, from whom he specifically asks for God's protection, keep them from the evil one. He knows that the devil will delight to disrupt the mission of Jesus' disciples by destroying their unity of heart and mind. If he can get them disagreeing with one another, getting on one another's nerves, nitpicking each other's flaws and hang-ups, he can keep them distracted from the work Jesus called them to do. Does that sound at all familiar? Maybe this is a strategy that perhaps the devil continues to employ even in 2018. So Jesus says, keep them so that they may be one. Guard them from the evil one, from the devil. Part of what it means for the disciples to be protected from the evil one is to remain in unity with one another. They're in agreement. They're pulling in the same direction. I'm reminded of Paul's exhortation in Philippians 1.27, where he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not back to back, side by side, pulling in the same way, confronting the enemies of the gospel, pulling and for and, and proclaiming the good news of life in Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God with one mind and in one spirit. Now, Jesus will go into much more detail about the nature and the depth of Christian unity in verses 20 through 26, which we'll look at next week. So for today, that's enough, I think, on the unity piece. Um, But let it be seen clearly that a result of the protecting of the disciples that Jesus is asking for is that they would be kept one, that they would be in agreement and working together for the gospel. And the third and final thing that he requests for the disciples is their holiness. Their holiness. He's asked for their protection. He's asked for their unity. And now he asks for their holiness in verses 16 through 19. Verse 16 says, They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Not cut from the same cloth. The world, that system of belief and thought that is governed by the devil and is uh, at, at war with the things of God and the way of the kingdom of God, the world is not like the disciples of Jesus. Because Jesus says, just as much as I'm not of this world, these disciples then are not of the world. They share with me the same values, the same vision, the same goals, the same new heart if you will, that's inclined toward the things of God. 
They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So a couple of things to say about holiness that I think we see in these verses. Number one, holiness is not just about moral purity. It's about mission. Usually when we think of being holy, we think of being clean. We think of not saying bad words. We think of not watching bad stuff. We think of being kind. We think of being like good neighbors, right? We think of all the kind of positive things that are like godlike, godliness, right? And that is an element of holiness, to be sure. Because if in, to the extent that God says, I'm holy, so be holy like me, those things will be true of us. We will represent him. We will have the, the scent or the flavor of godlikeness in our lives and in our dealings with other people. But the word holy really means to be set apart. The Greek hagiadzo is the, is the verb here, which is just fun to say. Say hagiadzo. Cool verb. Good job. You're all Greek speakers now. So it, it means to set aside for a special purpose. And in fact, the word sanctify comes from that hagiadzo, which is from the same word as holy, holiness, to make holy. And the word that Jesus says, uh, that the ESV has him saying down in verse 19, where he says, I consecrate myself, that's the very same word, hagiadzo. I consecrate, I sanctify, I make holy. So what we're talking about when we're sanctifying something is to set it aside for a special divine use. So to say that I've sanctified something is to say that it's uniquely intended to be used for God's purposes, for God's glory. So when Jesus asks the Father to sanctify his disciples, what he's saying is, keep them set apart for your purposes, for your mission, for your ministry. Gary Burge, who wrote a commentary on the Gospel of John, says this, To be holy is not, in the first instance, a description of perfection, though this is included. It refers to a life that is so aligned with God that it reflects God's passions completely. Such a person can be considered sanctified, holy, attached to God's purposes and presence. So if we want our lives to be holy, What we really mean is we want our lives to be all about God's purposes, God's plans. And we need to see all of our lives in that way. Not Sunday morning, not just in a Bible study. My entire life, every conversation I have with a neighbor, every interaction with my wife or my children, every moment I spend at work, all of that and more is to be governed by my set-asideness for God's purposes. God, what do you want me to be and to do in this relationship, in this situation, in this environment? That is the question of holiness, God, what is your purpose for me here? This is what I want to do. So holiness is about mission because Jesus is sending them on a mission. We know the mission well. Go make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. That's the mission of the disciples, and thus it becomes the mission of the church. That's the mission he sent us on. In order to do that, we've got to see ourselves as set apart, sanctified for God's unique and holy purposes. Holiness is about mission. Second, holiness is rooted in God's word. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. If you want to be holy, if you want to be like God, you need to hear from God. If you want to hear from God, you need to be saturated by the word of God. There's no other way. There's no shortcut to holiness. There's no shortcut to God-likeness. Our set-apartness for his purposes and our growth into that calling that he's placed upon the life of a Christian and the life of the church corporately is totally dependent upon our saturation with and learning from God's word. He's spoken to us. He's revealed his heart and his ways and his purposes in this book. So if we want to be holy, we will go there. We will spend time here. We will learn it. We will share it. We will help each other to learn it and to live by it and to challenge each other to learn it better and to memorize it and to quote it to each other and to share it. That's that's what holiness comes from. Holiness is rooted in God's word. And the Bible is where God speaks to us today. So we need to learn it and know it and be saturated by it. Holiness is rooted in God's word. And finally, holiness is empowered by Jesus himself. If we're to be set apart, sanctified for the purposes of God, Jesus himself will be not just the example of it, but actually give us the power for it. Look in verse 19. For their sake, I consecrate myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. If Jesus didn't consecrate himself, if Jesus didn't set himself apart for the mission of God and the purposes of God, we'd have no chance. We'd have no hope of being holy ourselves. We'd have no chance of being aligned with God's purposes and presence. Jesus has to consecrate himself. How's he going to do that? How is Jesus going to sanctify, set himself apart for God's mission? Well, what's in view in this entire chapter, and really this entire speech, chapters 13 through 17, is the cross. Jesus is about to go, even just probably hours away at this point, from being arrested, taken into custody, led into a mockery of a trial where he will be falsely accused of things he did not do, claims he did not make, and nailed to a criminal's cross. Not because Rome won or because the Jews won, but because God appointed Jesus to bear the sins of his people. So when Jesus says, I consecrate myself, he's saying, I am fulfilling God's mission by going to the cross 
to bear the sins of my people. That's what Jesus came to do. He fulfilled the law by living a sinless and obedient life. And then he went to a cross for you and for me. And he took our sin upon himself so that God's wrath and anger and punishment against sin could be poured out on him instead of on us. So I've got to ask, do you know this Jesus? Do you know this God who has given of himself so fully and freely that we might go free? This Savior who's taken upon sins that were not his own so that those whom the Father had given to him could be set right, could be sanctified and set apart for God's purposes. The way to know that, just going back to what we saw earlier in this passage, the way to know that you belong to him, the way to know that you've been set apart in that purpose is that you believe. You receive Jesus as the son of God and you believe that he alone could bear your sin in himself and pay the penalty that you owed. So if you've believed, if you are believing, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross, you're his. If you haven't, and you feel the spirit of God maybe moving in your heart to do that, I think I believe, I want to believe, I'm not sure if I believe. Let's talk. Let's have a conversation. Let's walk together to the cross of Jesus where your sins can be cleansed and your life can be sanctified, set apart for God's purposes. Let's pray together.